No, we're not doing the Manhunter riff. Damn it. Because I'd fuck it up. Okay. Can I just say I I came to get the old scent back? Smell yourself. Have you ever seen blood on the moonlight well? Welcome back to another Waffle for Us retrospective. It's been a long time, it feels like. Matt and I recorded one over the break. It was a disaster, so we're here with a new series to make up for it's, it. It's been buried in a salt mine. Where it belongs. It'll never be released. I'm your host, Diego Crespo. And I'm Matt Gringo, the other guy who sometimes is here. And Matt, you brought up a very good topic while we wait for a... To get back to our other retrospectives, like Alien and Predator. It might be a while for Alien. Um, <laughs> Hopefully never again for Alien. <sighs> Shut your whore mouth. Um, Do you, they're not going to bring Ridley back. I, I just want them to burn down Fox Studios for $100 million. They got it. They're going to put mouse ears on the scene of more. <laughs> <laughs> That's the big problem here. Remember when everyone was saying that about Star Wars? They're like, oh, they're going to nerf Star Wars. And then they're Rogue still One, saying it. Rogue One ends with everyone dying. Yeah, but Disney, they're making these safe movies, man. <laughs> you know, they just. That's why everyone has loved them. Yeah, that's why everyone <laughs> unanimously loved The Last Jedi. <laughs> that's why they brought the whole world together. <laughs> they made safe movies, wouldn't upset anyone. You want to know what else is a safe franchise? The Hannibal Lecter series, which is kind of an unofficial franchise. I mean, it is, but it isn't. It's, uh, it's a mixed bag. Dino De Laurentiis seemed to think it was a franchise. <laughs> he thought well, a lot of things about a lot of people. Flash Gordon's going to beat Star Wars. <laughs> <laughs> but Matt, you brought up the Hannibal Lecter series, and we're both huge fans of a couple of entries in this series and this the TV series that came out a couple years ago uh, and you thought we should talk about it and I fully agree because who oh boy do we start off on a high horse here oh yeah no I, basically the entire the retrospective is just so we can talk about this movie <laughs> <laughs> i'm looking forward to the rest of it but i just I've, i was watching manhunter again and i'm like fuck this is such a good movie and, like, who can I talk to about this? <laughs> and I thought of my good friend Diego, and then we decided to do this. Thank you, thank you. Uh, I've written about this movie a couple times, just like, uh, even on Twitter, uh, audiences everywhere, RIP, uh, my own blog, just like a bunch of different times, and about different things about the movie, and I still have so much more to say that I never even, like, thought I would. It's just, it, it's one of those movies you can keep going back to. And you always find something new to appreciate or like you can look at the the framing and like the atmosphere and remember when Michael Mann shot movies on film. Yeah, it's so it's so great. It's just beautiful and terrifying. <laughs> and it's like it, and it does that weird thing where like something that looks that good can be that intense and it fucks with your brain in that way. And it's I just I find myself revisiting it a lot. And I if you knew me back in the day, by back in the day, I think I mean three years ago, I was harassing basically everyone to watch Manhunter. Because fuck, why wouldn't you? And then some people watching like I didn't like it. Uh, you're a fucking idiot, Ethan. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, I can kind of get why people wouldn't be into it because movies aren't really made like this often mm-hmm. or at least like compared to something like silence of the lambs which is another fantastic movie yeah but um it's made in a more like i guess traditional filmmaking sort of way not that that's a bad thing obviously every movie should go about telling its own story it however best i wouldn't fit. say 
I wouldn't say Sounds of the Lambs was super, like, wasn't, like, more traditional, but it definitely, over the years, more people copied Sounds of the Lambs than Manhunter, so we have a lot more to compare it to. Um, Sounds of the Lambs... Traditional is maybe the wrong words, like... Well, here, what were you going to say? Well, just thinking, like, like what, what was the first movie to do the, like, talking to a guy in a cell that you're, is, like, similar to you. Because, like, that became popular after Silence of the Lambs. Like, every movie started doing it. Mm-hmm. And, like, Austin Powers, like, parodied it, like, four years before The Dark Knight did it. <laughs> and then after and then Dark started, Knight. <laughs> yeah, and then everyone, like, copied The Dark Knight. And, but I think it comes back to Silence of the Lambs, which comes back to Manhunter. Like, like, just that stuff slowly coming to the mainstream. But Manhunter is such a different, because it's, pre Sons of the Lambs because every quote unquote psychological thriller that followed Sons of the Lambs kind of aped its style and no one really aped Manhunter in the psychological thriller slash horror scene Uh, at least that's how I view it I would totally agree and I think before we go into the, the movie as a whole uh, you recommend that we talk about a little bit about the Harris novels and Michael Mann, but I want to touch on Michael Mann more specifically because Miami Vice, a TV show he was producing, uh, everyone knows about Miami Vice. Even if you just heard it like in passing, you know about Miami Vice. If you don't know directly what it is, it's a heavy stylized cop drama from the eighties that often it, it, it would, it would like forsake a lot of heavy plot details for like style and mood and, like, it's kind of the iconic 80s program, I would say. Would you agree? Um, depends on who you are in the 80s. Okay. Because um, there's, there's a lot of stuff that reflects the 80s that reflects more of the awfulness of the 80s, in my opinion. But, hey. Uh, it's it's where everyone gets those cool Vice-type uh, fonts from. Like, yeah, definitely. Vice City, Grand Theft Auto, is, is mm-hmm. just their version of Miami Vice, you know? Yeah, Miami Vice and Scarface. Yeah, like, yeah. thrown together. Mm-hmm. And it's basically that. Yeah, and so Michael Mann's, like, his style and mood and atmosphere, he basically brought that over when he did Thief, his directorial debut, or I guess featured directorial debut, because he mm-hmm. had done a TV movie at the time. And um, this was kind of like the Miami Vice version of... Uh, <laughs> of a crime thriller on the big screen i guess but it, there's more to it than that but i guess that's the, like the most you can compare well, it's, it to it's, yeah it's it's reminds me a lot of like certain noir films and like more more like the downbeat ones like something like the friends of eddie coyle or something like that um but it's got such a distinct visual style that it's separate and honestly i don't even think we started seeing that when, like Drive when that came out, I kind of was like, "Oh, this is like Thief," except you know, a, dr- a getaway driver. Yeah, and I mean, it, you got you know, you got stuff like Walter Hill. Walter Hill did a lot of the similar like neon lighting type thing, um, but Man did it. <laughs> I, I guess a lot more one could say. He still um, does it. <laughs> oh yeah, um, and it's. It doesn't totally fit these times anymore, I guess, considering how people responded to Black Hat. Um, well, that's but, a whole can of worms I could, I could get into. And, yeah. Because I get a lot of criticisms of Black Hat, but uh, that one's but that, very much peak digital man because he doesn't mm-hmm. shoot on film anymore. But that's. But I'm also saying, like, people don't, like, they... they it doesn't fit today, but Manhunter didn't really fit when it came out because it wasn't like a big hit. No, no, it lost money. I think. I think. Yeah, I think it. Ba- it might have barely broken even, but it, it it was one of those cult movies, and that's how I discovered. It. I mean, it was just one of those like ones where it was like, oh no, Manhunters, where it's at, <laughs> like where you hear people talking about it, or like it was you know it was a trivia question movie. Like, what was the first movie with Hannibal Lecter in? And, you know, idiots say, sounds lambs, and you're like, no, motherfucker, Manhunter. You're like, oh, all right. <laughs> Where they spell Hannibal Lecter's name with a K for no reason. Oh, yeah. Was it like a, a rights thing? I mean, I, I can't I, imagine why they just decided to change Lector to that. And I, I, it's only in one scene. I really have no idea. 
it it because it doesn't because you that, that wouldn't hold up in court. Yeah. I mean, uh, it's like they tried like there was like that weird rights issue with like Casino Royale. So like they, when they did like a comedy parody, they were all named like Jimmy Bond <laughs> and stuff like that. So uh, I don't know. It's just so odd. But this is you know the first Lecter film, and Michael Mann's style fit. Like it's such a weird combination for. Michael Mann's style and serial killer hunting drama, which this is, I think, one of the first of that type. This is, might be the first, like, hunting a serial killer type movie. I think you're right. Other than, like, slasher films um, or, like, Italian giallo or whatever those are called. Because the Italian slashers always had, like, a mystery element where, like, police will come in and be like, oh, there's a killer. But it was never, like... Getting deep, it was more a who done it than trying to discuss like the psychology of a killer. Um, and I think Manhunter is the first one to do that. And not only that, I think it's also the first one to really like get into the psyche of that detective. I mean, obviously, a lot of noir and like mystery cop films deal with like mm-hmm. the like the, the toll a mystery takes in the detective and like the the relationships and whatnot. But you've never seen that really married with the serial killer aspects by this point. And this one covers, like, all new grounds in both categories. And I think that's because, like, stuff like criminal profiling and serial killer were very new. Like, those terms were very new when Manhunter was released. I think, uh, I gotta check, because, like, isn't Mindhunter based on the guys who came up with the term serial killer? I think, I still need to watch it. I think so. And it's, it's basically where they came up with, like, the criminal profiling ideas, um, which a lot of, um criminologists will say is actually pseudoscience um, there's a lot of debate about the validity of criminal profiling but it was new and thomas harris was very interested in that kind of stuff so he wrote a book about it and came up with two of the greatest characters of all time and only one of them makes a second appearance which is so <laughs> odd to me because you get like hannibal because it's it's basically like if you did sherlock holmes but instead of you only have one story with Holmes and the rest are Moriarty. Yeah. With, with the Will Graham Hannibal Lecter combination. It's so, it's bizarre. Maybe he couldn't mine anything out of the Will Graham character. That might have been it, but I think it's just like there's all this talk. Tom Harris is one of those writers who like hates writing. Oh. And he's like made such a fortune off of his like the Sons of the Lambs property that he really doesn't even need to write. Um, and he keeps like a very low like profile. He's not doesn't give too many interviews. So I think he just he it was probably a difficult task to write, and then he just didn't want to do it again. <laughs> yeah. And then we'll we'll go back to him when we get to uh, Hannibal and Hannibal Rising because oh are, yeah, there's a lot of talk about with him there. And I yes, don't, I feel bad for him. Is all I'll say. <laughs> I feel bad for everyone. But... <laughs> <laughs> for everyone involved with all those movies. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, but for for Manhunter, yeah, the with the, with that style, like normally this would feel like a kind of exploitationy, mm-hmm. and I think what separates it is because Michael Mann for um, all of his his crime drama stuff, like his movies sometimes have uh, relatively high body counts, uh, especially everyone knows the shootout in Heat, which is remarkable filmmaking, but not like glamorized at all. Like, it lingers on the people that get shot just long enough, so you kind of feel kind of bad for them. And then you see the aftermath. of Like, the second half of that movie is the aftermath of this insane shootout in the downtown streets of L.A. And uh, Manhunter is is really kind of like the early roots of that, for me, anyways. At least I see that, where um, man is interested in the psychology of the killer, but also because the killer, the Tooth Fairy, or Francis Dollarhide, the Red Dragon, Mm -hmm. whatever names tossed onto him. He's ultimately basically a broken human being and no one is there to help him. And you, you, you don't sympathize, but you feel bad for him, you know, like he, he well, wants to be more than what he's become. In his own well, Graham, Graham even says it in the film where like he empathizes with the child that was made into this killer, but he doesn't empathize with the killer, you know? Yeah, but you have to understand like where that he at one point at some point in his life he was just a kid, mm-hmm. and that's a that's that's a newer thing 
in, especially when you're dealing with someone who's like basically pure evil. I mean, he does things that you can't like come back from. The book goes into great detail of like what Dollar Hyde's childhood was like and like uh, the abuse he suffered from his family. And it's pretty some pretty sick stuff. But the movie doesn't go into it and it doesn't really need to because you, you really see it all in the filmmaking and the performances. So you don't really need like a flashback or like someone to go into tons of detail about what's driving Dollar Hyde. And Will Graham, played by the great William Peterson, mm-hmm. who would basically go on to play that same character in a abundance of, of cop shows. I don't even remember what, what series that was, but he played... Wasn't it CSI? Yeah, I think that's the one. And he played a similar type character, hunting down serial killers for like 10 years or 11 years for a while. And, um... Yeah. You see the the wrong influence, I think, from Manhunter and Silence of the Lambs in series like that. Or, like, especially something like Criminal Minds. Yeah, Criminal Minds is, like, the worst end of this. Yeah. Like, that's such a bad show. And so ludicrous. Unlike Manhunter, which is totally realistic. <laughs> um, but, uh, no, like, it just, it takes it to this level that's, like, that's where it gets exploitative, where it's, like, all mental illness will lead to <laughs> serial killing. <laughs> Yeah, and if it's, it's just, gross and uncomfortable to watch. It's basically like if you have like any sort of mental issue and you were slapped once as a child, you'll grow up to be a mass murderer. Yeah. And that's a that's, terrible way to present those type of things. Yeah, that, that show is, is gross. And, I mean, even outside of that, it's just poorly made, where Manhunter but, is perfect. William Peterson, it's so – because he's great in this and To Live and Die in L.A., which I think came out like the next year – but he never really did that much. Like he's he doesn't have like a huge career, which is odd to me. Yeah, because uh, he's ma- so good in this. He's great, and he's great in *Live and Die in L.A.*. And maybe he's just like an asshole to work with. I've never really heard anything about him. Um, or maybe he just doesn't like. Maybe he's like I I do whatever's interesting to me. And apparently, one of those things was the movie *The Beast* about a giant squid, <laughs> <laughs> which I've brought up here before. <laughs> the Jaws remake. Yo, it's written by Peter Benchley. <laughs> um, I believe that he's in that. I think he's the guy. He's basically Will Graham hunting a giant squid. <laughs> he's got to understand the psychology of the squid. <laughs> um, You've seen these swimmers, haven't you, my man? Yes. <laughs> it's uh, so... But no, he's so great. And I don't know what the fuck. Um, and he, he's my favorite Will Graham. Um, which I know will upset some of the uh, Hannibal TV series fans, which is not a, a put down on that at all. It's just I I just like his like clearly barely barely containing his anger and excitement whenever dealing with uh, the psychology of the Tooth Fairy. Like he's always got to like be gripping a wall or something to make sure he doesn't totally like go over the edge. Or just, like, the excitement he gets when he puts something together. Like, his epiphanies are, like, not just... He's, like, living the killing as he does it. And it's only on his face. Whereas, like, Hannibal, they always kind of... Like, they usually reenact the murder in some way. Um, which I like, too. That adds a whole... If you're going to do it again, might as well do it differently. And, again, it's so odd that he's, he's, like, this great character and you only get this one movie out of him. If this had made money and Dino De Laurentiis was, like... Sequel, now, do you think he would have forced William Peterson to come back? Um, I don't know. I don't know, because, like, because the, the thing they immediately went to, because they went to Silence of the Lambs next, but I don't know if that was Dino. Um, no, I think Dino uh, De Laurentiis went bankrupt, because I remember Lance Henriksen brings that up in an interview about Near Dark. That's mm-hmm. why that movie failed at the box office. They had no funding <laughs> for marketing. So then maybe no, maybe, maybe this, it was too late by this point anyways for a sequel. Even if it I know there's a long. right, I, I know Lorenta's, his company owns like at least part of the rights. And cause there was an issue with trying, cause they kept trying to get, um, Clary Starling in, uh, the Hannibal TV show, but they didn't have the rights to that character. That's right. Yeah. So I think there was an issue there. And then they got the uh-huh. rights and this show got canceled. Yep. Which is such a shame. He wanted Ellen Page to play, uh, Clarice, and I thought that would have been really interesting. Oh, that would have been so fucking good. Honestly, it's a good thing this movie tanked, because we end up getting blessed with two great movies. Yeah, yeah. So. Weird little miracles like that. Um, but now you just, I know we're going to talk about a couple other characters that 
because a couple of them repeat throughout the many reboots in this series. Mm. But uh, I really want to talk about the moments when Will Graham has his like his epiphanies or when he's like studying stuff. Like the first instance you see him studying in uh, the the first crime scene he goes to is I think the first time we see Michael Mann start playing with like the use of like shattered glass and like mirrors. And, like, these empty backgrounds to, like, really just trap Graham in, like, this weird state of mind. And you're, like, right there in there with him. And then he'll go over to, like, the sink and, like, rinse his mouth with water, splash some water on his face. But you don't see his face because it's distorted by by the glass and the mirrors. Mm-hmm. And it's, oh, it's so good. Or when back in the hotel when um he's he's going over the videos of the, of the now-deceased family. And every time he goes back to the TV... The framing of the shot gets more compressed, and then by the like the last minute of that section, it's just Will Graham in this corner with the camera mostly obscured by the TV in front of him, and it looks like he's being pushed out of the frame. And it's oh, it's so good, yeah, it's so fucking good. Who the fuck thinks of that? You know, well, and who thinks to tell? Because this is all told visually. Like we're not even told really. Like unless you like read what the movie's about before going in. If you go in clean, all you know is that some sort of crimes happen. There's a detective involved. Yeah. And for some reason he doesn't want to go back. So we have to be told all of this visually. And man does such a great job of setting up like the basic thesis statement of the film, just with the visuals in the first like five minutes of just, you know, him at the beach, cause, which is where we meet Will Graham and not wanting to go back. And we just, we get like vague conversations about this killer and that for whatever reason, and just through the body language of the actors, you get the whole dynamic going on and like why Graham is reluctant to go back. Um, we don't totally know Graham's way of thinking yet, but we we get that this is not a great thing to be involved with. Yeah. And I, I love, the thing I love about when he goes to the first crime scene is... One, you got the the mirroring POV shot, which is, you know, we had the POV shot in the opening, which is Dollar Hyde's point of view going into the house and waking up. uh, Were the leads the second family? Um, I think so, yeah. I think it was uh, uh, Mrs. Leeds uh, when she wakes up in the middle of the night and with the light in her face, which is one of the scariest images (laughs) in film. Like, that is so, that's one of, like, my all-time nightmares. And like home invasion, <laughs> and we but we get a mirror of the that POV shot when Graham goes into the house and goes up those stairs. It's like basically this exact same shot, and that's you know the first indication of you know the relationship of Graham and the killer without anyone really sitting down and going, "Oh, that Graham, he thinks just like him," <laughs> you know, like like a weaker film would do, or like literally any fucking network procedural. Oh. You got to get yeah. into the mind of the killer. Like they don't stop promoting shows like that, and they they fucking they can't convey shit. I mean, I get it, TV schedules and whatnots, but like, oh my god, I don't know how anybody could sit down and watch any of those after Manhunter. Mm-hmm. Like it's just so boring, and this is like every moment, every frame is just feeding you new information or like extending some level of like atmosphere and mise en scène shit. Mm-hmm. It, it takes me to, like, another plane of existence when I watch this movie. Yeah, it's so good. And I mean, and then, like, you, that scene goes on, too. And you go to the bedroom where the brutal murders have taken place. And you li- so far, like, the whole house is dark, but it's, like, a blue dark. And blue is kind of the symbol. Like, you'll notice, like, that's how his wife is framed in almost every scene. She's in some sort of blue filter. And that kind of symbolizes, you know, his like home life's the stability and like a, the more naturalistic feeling. And then he, he literally goes up to the bedroom and shuts the blue light out. Like he closes the blue light behind him as he goes into the bedroom. So he's like shutting off this other side of his life so he can, you know, the, the empath, the more like human side and then turns on the light, which reveals his greenish suit. And green is a big, important color in this film. We'll get into that later. And then. The not quite white room that is covered in blood, <laughs> and that's like just the like the slow building of like these colors that like will dominate different frames, that will indicate like the inner workings of these characters. 
I guess you could say we've seen this film, my man. Yes. Yeah. I uh, also want to give a shout <laughs> out to uh, Dante Spinotti, who is one of Michael Mann's go-to directors of photography. And, uh, yes. Incredible work here. Maybe career best. Uh, th- that guy is incredible. He's doing the Ant-Man sequel next. But moving on. Yeah. If you look at his filmography, there's it seems to be about his... He's very talented, but he needs to be in the hands of good directors. <laughs> I, I didn't want to say anything else. Um, yes. So. <laughs> Well, we're, we will be talking about him again. Oh, yes, we will. <laughs> Which <laughs> As we will make your see. statement even more credible, I guess we'll say. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Uh, that's gonna. That's kind of going to be a fascinating revisit. Yeah. Um, but no, so like just the way that we're, ta- we're, we're taught about Graham. Like, of course, there is dialogue that we'll get more into. Graham will basically flat out say what his relationship with the killer is. And Lecter will be there to help map it out, too. Uh, but it's it's not how they start it, you know. It's not like there's an opening scene of people like looking through a profile, <laughs> and then you know, like some movies do these days. I see you've recruited Victor Von Doom. <laughs> <laughs> Just it throws you in. You sink or swim. <laughs> mm-hmm. Someone else that kind of throws in uh, that might throw people off with how this character is used, given. Just how big of a household name this character is now, uh, Hannibal Lecter. Like, I showed this movie to a friend a couple years back, and they're like, "Yeah, I liked it, but there wasn't a lot of Hannibal Lecter," you know. <laughs> and it's just like, I can understand that immediate sentiment because Hannibal Lecter is—he's a brand name now. And so to see a movie like this, where he has maybe fifteen minutes of screen time max. And I would not even. I mean, I think it's under 10 minutes of screen time. It's it's less than Silence of the Lambs, but mm-hmm. Silence of the Lambs spaces it out more. And then everything else after that has him in hours and hours of footage. Yes. Yeah. So I, I can get that, but you got to remember this is not, it's not Hannibal Lecter centric. He's a part of this overall story and very different from other interpretations, I would say. Yeah, and that's the thing that throws people off a lot now. Um, because, I mean, the two Han- other Hannibal Lecters we have are somewhat benevolent. Not benevolent, benevolent's the wrong word. But they have, you know, more of a relationship with both Clarice and uh, Will Graham on the TV series. And this Hannibal Lecter fucking hates Will Graham. Yeah. He just fucking hates him. Hates the fact that this fucking little dweeb caught him. A guy with clearly so many issues was able to catch him. And it drives him insane. And a lot of people, like, that throws people off. because Especially those coming from the TV series. Yeah, because they're they're, they're basically lovers. Yeah. I mean, they're best buds. Yeah. In that. And there is something about Lecter where, even in this, where he's, like, basically a huge asshole the whole movie... Even in this, he still kind of gives off that vibe that psychopaths really do give off, which is that you want them to like you on some level. Like, if you met Hannibal Lecter at a party and you didn't know he was a cannibal killer, <laughs> you would want to, you would want him to like you because he, that's his he's got that charisma, and that's part of what makes him such an interesting and terrifying character. And in this version, Brian Cox's interpretation of it, we, we see both sides of it because we get the great scene with, you know, him and Will Graham, the first meeting, where he's basically toying with Will Graham and we don't realize that until the end of the scene. Oh, it's, that's, that scene, I just want to talk about that really quick because it looks like right there, there might be some common ground or like some, some sense of commonality between the two, where they're like, they have a mutual understanding, like, okay... If this is your first time watching Manhunter, I was really, like, for instance, I was really easy into it, like, oh, okay, they're going to kind of work together, and I'm sure he'll toy with him. And then he's, he, uh, Lecter's like, all right, you mind leaving your files here? Would you like to leave your home phone number? And then right mm. there, it's like, oh, shit, that's right. This yeah. Is a, this is a very bad person. It's it's so, it's great. And I just like the idea, like, also there's, you know, a visual component to that scene as well, where, you know, They've put Lecter in an all-white room, a sterile room, 
um, which which I couldn't even tell for the first time, first few times watching it. But there's glass on the in between those bars that separate them. Um, very different than how Sons of the Lambs will do it, where it's just an all glass wall. You know, very little like breaking it up. Yeah. Um, this one, there's just very clear bars, which kind of gives you that off kilter look at Lecter. And also kind of gives you the visual of who's really the one in a cage here. Eh? Uh, eh? Yeah. But also you have the all white, which uh man has said that he, he used it to kind of give a contrast. He wanted Lecter's personality to contrast with the sterile environment. Like you, the only thing telling you that he's a killer in that scene really is the fact that he's being kept in that cell. Cause he, cause he really just acts like just kind of an ass. <laughs> And then, but then how he's treated really informs on just how dangerous he is. And I saw that scene, you got more with colors because Graham is wearing a, a blue shirt this time. He's wearing a blue shirt, black jacket, and a green tie. <laughs> and the green, you can honestly look at as the green colors in this movie have a lot of different meanings. But it's the, the scent in this scene that he's talking about, about getting the scent back. And Lecter isn't even giving it off, really. He doesn't have any colors. He's he's all white. And Graham is trying to, you know, shield himself with the blue and black, but he's he's the one really carrying the scent. That's why Lecter kind of says, smell yourself in that moment. It's kind of just a way of re- reinforcing that little thing. I, I, find, I just find it so interesting watching that scene. Oh, it's just an but, outstanding scene. Uh, and then... We'll, get, we'll kind of get to it later, but there's this fucking amazing thing that happens when he does the phone call. Now we're in the cell with Lecter, and he's no mm-hmm. longer behind bars in any of the shots. Because yes. by that point, he's gained control for the mm-hmm. first time in a long time. And Even that small scary. cell they keep him in can't contain him. Yep. Oh, it's, it's, it's so good. Uh, and again, we get... and Like I said, that's where you get that moment where you see the two sides of Lecter, because he's very charming when he's on the phone <laughs> trying to get the information he wants and at, like you can like there's that creepy disconnect with his facial expressions and how he's talking um which you see again in a recent film get out does a has a very similar scene oh yeah um where's like just sip that finger down right onto the letter g <laughs> and but he's clearly like filled with contempt at the idiots he has to deal with <laughs> yeah. on the phone and it, oh, it's so good. Um, and again, like I said, it throws people off that like the like they're talks to Graham for two seconds and then almost immediately trying to kill him. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's a very different interpretation, and I'm all for it. Not just because it came first, but because why would you want everything to be the same? You know, I mean, it's 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 interesting to look back at this and then jump forward through uh, a remake of this very movie and then remix of this movie in the Hannibal series on NBC. Yeah. It's like all these different ways to approach the same material. Uh, but last thing on that scene I want to, I want to talk about, um, there's a lot of really quotable dialogue, but it has like my favorite line of the series that always, for whatever reason, that one stuck with me and it scared the shit out of me. Uh, when Hannibal tells Will, he asks him if he's ever seen blood in the moonlight because it aque- it appears quite black. And I don't know why, but that is just so disturbing to me. Just how, like, calmly and precisely he says a line that mm-hmm. grotesque. I don't yeah. know why. That one, like, burrowed into the back of my brain when I first heard it. No, it's great. Well, because, I mean, it's also an indicate. you mean, Lecter's seen Blood in the Moonlight. Yeah. So. Clearly, many times. Um, it, there's a whole story in that line. Mm-hmm. And that's what gets you. It's really... It is. There's a lot of chilling little moments like that in this movie. And again, as I'm saying, I, I was doing the psychological thriller quote joke earlier, but this is a horror movie. Oh yeah, yeah, straight up. This is the natural progression of you know, there's Psycho, there's Halloween, and there's Manhunter, and of just serial kill. Like our country's kind of dealing with serial killers over the years, and this is a natural extension of that, in my opinion. Um, it's a Although very you get the, interesting perspective. I'd never heard it put that way. I love well, it. Well, the slasher genre goes in two different directions. <laughs> um, 
and you get the for- the formula, but then you get kind of like, well, let's actually deal with these archetypes in different ways. And, you know, even this movie's attempt to not make the killer's characters, like, you know, Michael Myers is like a franchise character. Well, Hannibal Lecter becomes a franchise character. So there's, there's a lot of similarities with the slasher genre. Uh, so, hey. Yeah. Uh, but again, this movie takes you down the rabbit hole in ways that other ones don't. And mm. sometimes you feel like you're spiraling. And literally the up the following scene after this, Will Graham basically has like the most severe panic attack I've ever seen on screen. Mm-hmm. And he literally spirals down the building. And <laughs> that setup is is so amazing. Mm. I mean, we keep, we keep talking about it, but like the visual storytelling in this is like unparalleled. Yeah, and how how man captures Graham running through these hallways, down these stairs, with the music blaring in the back, and like you're out of breath as much as Will Graham is basically. Hmm. I think it like this like is this is stuff. I don't think any films like ever really caught up with this type of filmmaking until like recently, honestly. Um, like Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy kind of has some of the visual storytelling that this movie has. Um, which is why, if you watch this movie, I would recommend giving Manhunter at least like two watches, because you. I totally understand if you if it didn't gel with you the first time, but it's one of those that's it's it's made to be rewatched. Um, but you know, Diego, if a film needs to be rewatched to be good, then it's a bad film. Holy fuck! Where did you hear that? Um, maybe some Star Wars fans. Oh boy. <laughs> They maybe had a uh, um, they maybe had a complaint about a, the very valid point <laughs> that sometimes you need to watch a movie more than once. <laughs> you know, Star Wars. You can't watch Star Wars movies more than once. <laughs> Those are not movies. You're supposed to be one and done, <laughs> disposable and forgettable. Well, if movies don't spoon feed you everything through dialogue, how are you supposed to know what they're about? And, you know, where's the story going to go now that Snoke is dead? <laughs> How are I mean, they, the, why are they going to expect me to be excited for the next one if this one wrapped up its own story? That's a real quote I have from several people that I know and respect. But what holy are we, fuck. What, what is there to look forward to? The emotional connection between Kylo Ren and Rey? <laughs> I mean, are you serious? <laughs> what type of person would want to... That's not a story. <laughs> a real story is punching a tall guy. <laughs> Speaking of punching a tall guy, um, Francis Dollarhide. <laughs> um, you want to get into him? Oh, yeah. Tom Noonan, uh, a great character actor who also gives a career best performance here. Uh, yeah. Total opposite of Will Graham and Hannibal Lecter physically. He's... Even though he's basically a giant human being, mm-hmm. um, and that's just his normal height, which is insane to me. Uh, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> he uh, he's kind of he plays it small. He's he's meek. He's shy. He's reserved. Uh, he's very uncomfortable in his own skin, and uh, this guy clearly doesn't have many friends. And you know, if if you just ran into him across the way, I'd be like, oh, hello, sir. You know, like, he doesn't seem like a, a bad guy at all. He just, he just seems a little, a little shy. Yeah. Yeah. But, uh. This guy always, he always, like, takes a second to, like, tell you what theater your movie's in. <laughs> <laughs> like, rips the ticket. He's like, you're in, uh, eight. It's over there. <laughs> and it's also, what I love about his performance, though, is that it's clear he's never taken a public speaking class. Because <laughs> he's got his whole, like, creepy ass speech to uh freddie lounge in it and it's like both very intimidating and very scary but also it's like got the awkwardness of someone who's never stood up in front of a crowd <laughs> and it's like just it it gives like all these layers to that performance <laughs> i'm still just laughing about, i mean that was, you, you're right but i'm still just laughing about the ticket ripper comment <laughs> yeah hey we've met a couple we've all met a couple francis dollar hides out there Oh, God, I hope not. <laughs> I'm just saying, it's going to be the guy ripping the ticket. <laughs> <laughs> Woo. Uh, Those people, you got to understand, the people that are weird at all the places you go to regularly, they have homes. 
And something's happening in those walls. <laughs> okay. So. Um, yeah, Tom Noonan's incredible in this, too. Um, and he he essentially falls in love with a blind woman named mm. Reba, which is important because this movie, along with like this incredible use of color, uh, I brought up earlier how it's about like the, the use of mirrors and seeing specifically which is why he'll often replace uh, their eyes with pieces of glass, or not replace. He, he just puts them in, right? I think he. I think he puts them in there. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Which is super gross, and they <laughs> never spend a lot of time going over it because you know why? That would be gross and exploitative, and it's not about shock unless, value. Unless you have a. Unless you're a really cool television series. <laughs> We're just gonna shit on like everything that's not Manhunter this episode, and I'm fine with it. No, no, I honestly, I, I, I like both interpretations. I'm not shitting on either one. He's a very different dollar hide than the two other times we will end up seeing him. Um, specifically in his size. In the book, he's described as like a smaller guy, but he's done a lot of bodybuilding. So he's like a very muscular person, but he's not like this giant. Yeah. And it's when it's more of his imposing height that instead of his muscles um but we do get a lot of indication that he's also very physically strong uh yeah he just he pick- tosses will graham like a sack of potatoes or he picks up freddie lounds by the face oh, yeah. <laughs> and also i couldn't get confirmation for this because i know that they kept they kept tom noonan separated from like the rest of the cast like they never saw him um until they had a scene with him to keep him mysterious uh, and I know that when William Peterson first faces him, that was the first time William Peterson had ever met Tom Noonan. <laughs> so that adds some a bit of a vibe to that scene. And I don't, but I could not confirm if the the look on Freddie Lowndes' face when he opens his eyes and sees the Red Dragon Killer, I could, I think that might be a genuine reaction. Oh God! <laughs> Which it's, I mean, that is that image with the fucking like pantyhose on his head. What the fuck is that on his... Is that a, like What was that I on think, his head? I think that is a pantyhose. I think it is. Yeah. And it's just so scary. It just his, his little pronunciations and like... He has like a little finger gun. Yeah. He's like, well, here I... Well, he's doing like a and... Jesus pose. Like Jesus would kind of do that in some paintings. Um, I can't tell you like the actual term of what that is. <laughs> But I've seen like Jesus, like or like kings, like supposedly like holy people doing. I think it might be like a blessing symbol, um, which makes sense because he's he believes he's ascending to like a higher state of being by going yeah. through these killings. You are enhancing the afterbirth. That's <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, and like you, I mean, you get like a sense of his grandiosity just in again in the visuals where you know he's got pictures of like the cosmos on his wall and the surface of Mars. And his dominating color is like a magenta and kind of earth colors, like, like tan earth colors, earth tones a little bit. Yeah. Um, definitely warmer. Yeah. But, but they signal like death and like barrenness and emptiness. And that's what dominates a lot of dollar hides frames and his crime scenes. After, uh, he and Reba spend the night together, uh, he runs out to her on the docks by his house. And I guess she, cause she can't see she's feeling the sunrise. And so that whole thing is also like this bright orange tint just because that's how the sun works. Yes. <laughs> um, but also that that's his dominating color, but it's a lot, it's less antagonistic there. Not just cause mm. he's had sex, but because he, it's almost like an out for him. Mm. Like, being able to be seen by another human being for what he wants to be rather than what he is or becoming in his own mind. Or what he thinks he is. There you go. I mean, he's projecting a lot in this movie. You think um, so? both his Both his insecurities and grandiosity. I mean, just his... <laughs> and literally. Yes. Um, and I mean, you get that moment, like, right after he slept with her where he, like, breaks down. And it's kind of like he kind of realized that... There's kind of that moment of doubt, like maybe he doesn't need to be the the killer he is to truly change. 
Um, and then we learn that that's not true. He was, he, you can't fix that. Um, which is a pretty heartbreaking moment. Um, not for him. Like it's sad. It's a little sad for him when he sees her with another man who is just helping her. Yeah. But in his mind, they're, uh, kissing. But that's just an indication that that relationship was never going to work. Yeah. He, he's, I mean, he's something would have happened. too unwell. Yeah. Something would have happened to set it off. It just so happened it happened right then. Set to uh, an awesome 80s synth rock soundtrack. Yeah. Another thing you will not see in most horror films. Yes, and somehow it only accentuates the mood instead of takes you completely the fuck out of it. Yeah, it's really... Uh, it would almost be a joke if you tried that today. Yeah, like, you know, I'm but, surprised... Well, no, because this, this movie was never that popular, but, like... You could probably make a pretty good parody out of this. Like a like an Edgar Wright type comedy riff where it's like takes itself just seriously enough. Just because of like the eighties tropes, you know, like uh the excessive use of like neon esque colors and mm-hmm. like the rock soundtracks. All the suits. And the suits, <laughs> oh my god, the, the suits and the hair. Um Freddie Lounge's hair. I've never seen Stephen Lang look so dorky. <laughs> it's incredible. Freddie yeah. Lowndes looks the most 80s, I think. Oh, yeah, definitely. Pal of mine. <laughs> on news. No one knows I'm doing my job. He does, uh, he pays the ultimate price. Yep. For being a reporter. Yeah. <laughs> um, Take that, journalists. But take that, journalists. I hope this doesn't slowly infect our minds, the collective <laughs> consciousness, to treat all reporters as enemies. We live in hell. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Stephen Lang's also really good in this. Uh, he yeah. will pop up in Public Enemies eventually, also directed by Michael Mann, and Avatar, which everyone knows him from. Because oh, yeah. he's so incredibly buff in that movie. <laughs> Everyone's favorite character. Colonel Army. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he's such a... It's, uh, it honestly is odd that that's the same actor. It totally doesn't feel like him. Like, if I didn't know uh, him from... Like, I had to look him up. I didn't know when I first saw him. It's like he's just gen- a good actor, you know? We're going to talk a lot of shit about the next time we run into this character. And I would completely agree with you anyways. Going up against someone who I just kind of, who can make it a, a terrible movie tolerable for at least five minutes. Mm-hmm. The next two Freddy Lounds are, are pretty remarkable. Yeah. Specifically the next one, though. And mm-hmm. that'll be a I little can't, sad to talk about. I'm honestly looking forward just to watching it again just for that. Yeah. Because um, literally nothing else in that film <laughs> is better. <laughs> The only other one is Jack Crawford, uh, played by uh, Dennis Farina. Oh, oh, I love Dennis Farina. Uh, that's his name, right? I didn't pronounce it wrong, did I? Yeah, no, no, Dennis Farina, yeah. 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 Uh, oh, he's he, he, great. great actor, for, unfortunately passed recently, um, like a year ago, I think. Uh, I think three years ago. but. Oh, really? I, yeah. I've lost all sense of time. <laughs> uh, no, but he was, uh, Dennis Farina was, was a tremendous actor. Um, I don't think he was ever, like, as popular as he could have been, but he was always in something. Like, he was never not in a movie that you were going to watch one year or another, you know? Or, like, a TV mm-hmm. series or something. He had he had great... He's He's got a great catalog of performances. Yeah. I mean, I love... He's probably my the reason why I like the movie Get Shorty. <laughs> I don't know if you've ever seen New Girl. Oh, was he on New Girl? Yeah, he had a, a, a minor arc where he played Nick Miller's father. Oh, really? Yeah. Uh, New Girl's a wonderful little show that I don't think ever got the credit it deserved either. And it's I've, ending this year, so I'm a little sad about that. I've heard it's good, but I've got like seven other shows to get through. Totally understandable. Um, and they wrote him off of the show. Uh, in a they, they wrote off the character that he died as well. And then mm-hmm. he ended up dying in real life. And so that's a really sad episode, but then it gets sadder with real life context. And it's very, uh, yeah. it's like uh Peter Falk and Columbo. How do you think Columbo would do in this movie? Oh, Columbo would have caught dollar hide within an hour. <laughs> 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 no, I don't know. 
because every Columbo episode is based on the premise that uh, Columbo meets this killer within the first five minutes of arriving at the crime scene. (laughs) (laughs) So, but I don't know. Um, I would love to have seen him uh, team up with Will Graham. (laughs) Um, Well, I I basically talked about, you know, the, uh, the three basic lights, which are like blue, green, and magenta, kind of. Magenta being dollar hide, blue being Graham, and green being the connector. And I like the way green is used in this film. It it kind of becomes a game, watching it pop up every now and then. And it's also interesting to see these colors mixed together and which ones are more dominant in each scene. Um, With green representing, like, you know, kind of discovery and the investigation itself, it, when you're at the FBI headquarters and ever you see the color green, it's like a very controlled and trapped green. Meanwhile, when you're at like Dollar Hyde's house, the green is like coming through the windows. Also, the windows are like slanted and the walls are very angular. So it gives you like this off kilter shadow effect um, to show that he's a, the, that this Dollar Hyde guy's a little off. <laughs> I mean, that, you know, that's kind of basic stuff, but I still find it really interesting. Um, I also find it that both uh, that the, the way the forensic science is shown to us in this film, because I mean, the books and later versions of uh, the series play up the kind of supporting cast that help out the lead detective a lot. In, in this film, there really aren't that many side characters. We kind of meet them one at a time and maybe for one or two scenes. Um, but the FBI is all the forensic science is shown to us through how they manipulate light. I think that's interesting that they're literally manipulating light, which is a, which is also how films are made. Mm-hmm. Films are about manipulating light. And Dollar Hyde works, you know, in a photo development plant. So he's manipulating light in his own way. I just like that that connection right there. Well, there's a really interesting article. I got ah, fuck, I got to I got to find it. I think it's like Vox or someone put it up for like the 30th anniversary of Manhunter a year ago or something mm-hmm. like that. Um where the thesis was basically like Manhunter is about looking for a serial killer, but it's also about Michael Mann's like ode to film in a weird way because of that manipulation of light and how it's all about seeing. And then like the key to like the case is the films themselves. Yeah. And yeah, that, that was an interesting read. So I'll, mm-hmm. I'll put a link or I'll put images up if I don't know. It depends how lazy I am. Yeah. That's, in- that's interesting. And I, I get that. I get that feeling. I also like, uh, a lot of the sound design in the film, um, not just the music. Uh, to go back to the first hotel room scene when Graham is looking over uh, the crime, when he's watching the tape of the crime scene, he can't quite get this. You know, he can't quite put things together yet because he's just starting out again. Um, I like how he's he has his balcony open so you can hear the ocean. That's kind of like his, you know, lifeline is like tethered to the ground as he's entering. Um, this dark world again. And I like, he's, you know, he's forced to call home just to talk to his wife. And he basically just wants to hear her voice because he knows what he's about to do. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you just get that juxtaposition of like the blue tinted, you know, house and his, you know, very tan, very earth tone hotel room. Uh, I've always loved the scene in the plane where he, he drifts off to sleep. Not just because it's like, it's sad, but also like kind of darkly like funny. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's looking over these um, these crime scene photos, and like it's not funny to anyone in the movie, but it's just like oh fuck, that's fucked up. Yeah, but, uh, he drifts off. the The scene itself is also very good, where he's he's drifting off in like this dream, and uh, his wife is also now covered in white clothing. Uh, you can't really make her out initially; she's out of focus. It's the plant life behind her that's in mm-hmm. focus, and so you can't really get a grasp on her until there's a close up on her face later. And there's someone else in the boat, too, but you can't see their face either. And then he mm-hmm. snaps out of it, and there's these crime scene photos just laid out next to this little girl that's right next yeah. to him. And she starts crying, and it's like, oh, fuck. And, and also in that scene, you get the green – in that dream, you get the green is now kind of dominating you know, his more home life. Like he's, his, That's kind of his fear that he might bring this back with him. Initially, there's this cool magenta purple light coming through. Uh, the windows and then when he wakes up from the dream there's just nothing but we cut to the outside of the plane and it's that that magic hour where there's blue that that dark rich royal blue and then the sunset 
over, just over the horizon. And then just that little glimmer of, of orange light. And then we kind of fade away to the blue and then that's it. And then he's, he's back in a white sterile house surrounded by more wildlife and earth tones. Mm-hmm. That's, that's called a transition kids. It's called a transition Trevorrow. So when all the, all the roads come to a head and Graham figures out, uh, who, not directly who the killer is, but how to track him down. Which is a great fucking moment in this movie. It's, Oh, fuck. It's, it's another incredible moment. In it's this as exciting, if not more so, than the actual shootout that follows. Yeah, the shootout, I didn't like it when I first saw it because it's so different. It's Well, it's such a like stylized gunfight, which no, like we're not used to at all. Um, it almost looks like a mistake, but it's really just an attempt to attack that sort of chaos, you know? Yeah, because I mean, there, there's there are a lot of fucking shitty movies with shitty editing nowadays. Like it, it reminds me of when I saw the last Die Hard movie, and it is just oh. impossible to follow through what's happening there. Like it, I could see how someone could make this mistake, where if someone watches that movie and then they watch Manhunter, they're like, "Well, the endings are the same." It's like they're not, because the editing here is still like it, it's guided by purpose and. There's a geographical clarity that is non-existent. I mean, not just in Die Hard, but like in a lot of other movies that have shootouts. You know, like you you spent enough time in Dollar Hyde's house by that point, and you're aware of like the exterior uh, forest around his house, so you can kind of trace where everyone's going and running around. But the um, the editing between Graham and and Dollar Hyde specifically is really good. As Graham runs through, um, that that run up and jump through the window is like so my shit. <laughs> it's like that's why I watch movies. It's if I was transported for like the rest of the movie, like I've ascended by that point. Mm. <laughs> um, but when he's running through, and then on one perspective, it's like really fast paced and like, oh my god, he's gonna break through the glass. And then as Graham uh, breaks through the glass, it like starts. It perfectly melds the two, where it's like slow. And then fast, then it just hits you immediately again with the fast cut, hyperkinetic editing shit. And then from that point on, it's just like, oh, cut, 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 cut. And uh, it threw me the fuck off when I first saw it. (laughs) I I get it. It's also a little weird. I mean, I kind of get there is something to say about that all this buildup leads to basically a shootout with a monster. (laughs) Yeah. Um, But there's a lot going on visually here. That it, they're trying to tell the story more visually, because um, in the book, you know, the book doesn't end this way, and the later adaptation, um, Dollar Hyde fakes his death in an explosion and then goes for Will Graham's family. Uh, in both the book and uh, the remake, um, which uh, which leaves Will Graham horribly scarred in the end. He's like, the, I think in like later, I think in either Silence of the Lambs or Hannibal, the book, they describe him as like being kind of like, he just stays at home. He's so disfigured. In the books, he gets stabbed in the face, right? Yeah, yeah. I think he gets like stabbed like through the face. Fuck. And, we, and there's more of an emotional confrontation there, but that, that confrontation is still happening. It's just mixed with this gunfight. Um, also a deleted scene, which um, I only like literally just discovered. Uh, there's also I never knew there was a Manhunter director's cut, which I've never seen, um, and I only came across it because I was listening to a commentary, and it was for the director's cut, so it didn't match my version perfectly. <laughs> um, but uh, there's a scene where Will goes to meet the family that would have been the next target uh, had Dollar had not been stopped, and that's kind of Graham, kind of you know. Him, him going to the family instead of Dollar Hyde. He made it there, but he's not going to kill him, you know. Yeah, and like I, I get why they cut that scene too, because mm. you essentially get the the same thing with Reba. Because after Dollar Hyde sees Reba, what he thinks is her kissing another man, um, he's going to kill her, and then realizes he can't do it. Uh, and then it doesn't matter because he's caught anyways, and then he gets gunned down by Will Graham after he's killed several other police officers with a shotgun 
holding it in one hand, which is just like, holy fuck, dude. What the fuck? How and then his death, he achieves his transformation. Yep. Uh, you get that classic also, red dragon symbol there. Yeah. Also, I should note there's there's a, there's got to be deleted scene out there which I also didn't find where they show the red dragon tattoo. Because there's photos out there of Tom Noonan with the red dragon tattoo on his body, um, but that never appears in the the at least the you know regular version of the film. Yeah, I haven't seen the director's cut either, but I have to imagine there there's something floating out there. I know there's just all I've seen is pictures. Um, and I know that there was a scene with uh, Freddie Lowndes right before he got set on fire. Um, that, like, I think maybe Freddie begging for his life or something. Um, which, I can understand why you cut that. That might have been a little much. Yeah. I mean, which is even funny to say, like, for a movie that's about a serial killer and, like, that takes you to these dark-ass places, it knows when to hold back. Because in its own way, I think man's being respectable even though it's fiction, like, of the, the seriously grotesque shit that's happening here. Yeah. Because he's so interested in, in talking about, the, like, the trauma and, like, the toll that this could take on people. You can tell when someone actually really cares about the violence in their film or when they're just trying to be an edgelord. Yeah. Um, also, I'd be, uh, I'd be a little disappointed in myself if I didn't mention that in the book Red Dragon, um, Francis Dollarhide eats the Red Dragon painting. <laughs> That is correct. So <laughs> he consumes it. In in all the other versions, he consumes it, right? Does he? I I, I don't remember Red. I I barely remember Red Dragon. I remember uh, that might just be my leftover memory from Hannibal, but I'm mm. pretty sure he eats it there too. I I I know Hannibal does it just because it's fucking Hannibal. <laughs> like they <laughs> would not pass up that opportunity. Yeah, like that's the least weird thing to happen on that show. Okay, but really quick, also the the last moment between Will Graham and Reba after he's he saved her and then he gets he escorts her out to the ambulance and then she asks him who he is and he says my name's Graham I'm Will Graham and I think that's why it's okay to to have cut that other scene that where he meets the family because by that point we've already established that yeah he's completely Will Graham now you know he's yeah you do that work yeah he's succeeded. And he can leave that world behind once and for all. Until he gets rebooted. Yep. Yay. Isn't it odd that this is a film also about... Uh, it's kind of Michael Mann exploring the idea of filmmaking, but it's also a pretty good advertisement for fi- film being terrible. <laughs> because a serial killer might intercept it and use it to <laughs> break into your house. <laughs> That's why everyone should... Own their own video? I got nothing, but yeah. That's it's why a... everyone should have their guns attached to their <laughs> home video cameras. <laughs> <laughs> Didn't they do that in Zero Dark Thirty? Or am I misremembering that movie now? I think I think they did have cameras on, at least their helmets. Oh, yeah. I just remember like, every shot in that movie was just pop, pop, <laughs> and then dead. That's yay America. <laughs> <laughs> is is that what that movie's about? Because I feel like not. It really isn't, but uh, people who aren't that skeptical of the of America will see it that way. <laughs> because that's uh, it's hard to change those people's minds. Yeah. Um, anything else? I should also mention Manhunter. What'd you say? Anything else you want to bring up about Manhunter? Um, yeah, we never really talked why the title of the movie's Manhunter. Oh, yeah, because he's a manhunting. <laughs> well, the book was called Red Dragon, right? Mm-hmm. The Red Dragon yes. painting plays a key part in the film. Uh, Dino De Laurentiis produced a film the year previous called Year of the Dragon, which underperformed. So Dino De Laurentiis was convinced that it was because the word dragon was in the title. Wow. So they changed it to Manhunter. And that worked out well for them. William, you're going to make yourself sick or get yourself killed. Multiple trails. Just you and me now, sport. One hunter. I'm going to find you, damn it. FBI agent Will Graham. Manhunter.
Matt, would you recommend Matt Hunter to people? Matt Hunter? <laughs> yeah, Matt Hunter. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I would. I would also recommend Man Hunter. <laughs> as as would I. Two thumbs up, said Roger Ebert and Gene Siskel. Who are dead. Yeah, I don't even know if they gave it a thumbs up, actually. So I don't know if they even saw it. <laughs> they didn't like Blade Runner at first, so... You know what, that was that might have come out in their phase where they were all like, the violence of cinema today is awful. <laughs> <laughs> we People all go through wanting... phases. I think that's yeah. also important to talk about with stuff like this, too. Like, There was a point where I enjoyed a movie we'll talk about later in this retrospective, and then I revisited it after I had seen a lot more movies, and my taste had drastically changed. And then mm. I realized I hated it. So, There's also... A masterpiece of a film, which we'll be talking about, which has an element of it that is aged horribly. I can't imagine what you're talking about. Well, we'll get to it. Yeah, next up, Silence of the Lambs. That'll be up probably the week after this one, once these start going up. So keep a lookout for that. And on that note, Matt, where can the people find you? I am at EmperorOCN at Twitter.com. You can find me and all Waffle Press related retrospective things here in the descriptions down below, on the YouTubes, on Twitters, at D-E-W-G-O Waffles. Links to all my other bylines over there. So thanks for listening. Thanks for watching. We have been professionally unprofessional. <laughs>